Sentire Media. Hello, you. You're listening to A History of Italy. Recap Episode 6, from Episode 101 to Episode 136. Well, here we are at another important milestone. Recap Number 6. I must admit, I sort of forgot that I actually did recaps and was charging along when I suddenly realised that it might be a good idea to stop and get our bearings. That's part of the reason why there are so many episodes in this recap. The first one was only 14, the second one was 14, the third was 20-something, and so on. In my defence, though, it must be said that the episodes are covering less time, so... In less time, there are more episodes. Things are getting a bit complicated. That also reflects the structure we are working on at the moment, but I'll talk about that at the end. So, Recap 6 comes after our fourth year of podcasting and we're entering our fifth. It comes as Italy is gearing up for the summer. We've just had a visit from Hannibal. That's obviously not the Carthaginian general, but our first heat wave of the year. We got through it okay, and my geranium survived, so not too bad. Very, very worrying for global warming, though. It prompted Mrs. A History of Italy to decide that this year's holidays should be in a cooler place, so I jumped at the chance to head for one of the destinations I've always wanted to go to, that is, doing the inverse trip of the Holy Roman Emperors and heading up to Deutschland. So at the end of June, the History of Italy family will be making our way for a tour of wonderful Bavaria. So, listeners from Bavaria, if you have any recommendations or happen to own a hotel that we could stay in, we'll be happy to have your input. So, let's get down to business. Our first episode in this section explored the reasons behind the gradual disappearance of the communes in the period between the 13th and 14th centuries, with some stretching into the 15th as they gave way to the rule of the family dynasties called signorie in the plural, signoria being the singular. We saw that this was coming about for various reasons. The communes were no longer able to deal with the growing need of the new economic and demographic situation, especially when they were always so busy with feuds inside their cities and with neighbouring communes. This is also the reason behind the success of some of the Signorie Sovracittadine, i.e. the Signorie that ruled over more than one city. In this way, the commune could dump the military costs off on the lord in the Salarium Domini, the tax that they paid, which was always less than the cost of military campaigns. Having said this, the monopoly on violence was now out of the hands of the communal authorities. If you don't pay for it, you don't have a say in it. 
The various cases in which communes gave way to signorie were di popolo, of the people, when a popular figure was brought to power, capi fazione, factional leaders, when one of two or more factions inside a commune were able to prevail over the others and impose their leaders. Banchieri, bankers, signoria, with important banking families coming to prominence and, thanks to their financial power, gaining political power. Vescovi, of the bishops, in which the bishop would take control of the city. Dal territorio, from the surrounding countryside, when a local lord would take control of the nearby commune or the condottieri, the mercenary military leaders who could accumulate such power to take over a commune, sometimes by force and sometimes with the commune, submitting to them voluntarily. There were no real straight lines here, and signoria could be a mix of the above. After our analysis on the communes, we popped over to Venice to simply observe that the 14th century had brought Venice, traditionally a commercial and trade empire, a land one. First in their overseas holding in the form of the Byzantine lands in the wake of the nefarious Fourth Crusade, and then inland Italy, where they soon discovered that an internal land empire was not as easy as it looked, as shown by the beating they got from the papacy over the possession of the city of Ferrara. Nevertheless, they would hold on to the cities closer to the lagoon. One of the great problems for Venice in the 14th century would be the other maritime republic of Genoa, so we did a bit of catching up with them. We saw how their potential had been bottled up for centuries due to the presence of the Saracens, but that how, with a rare example of Italians banding together, they managed to see off that threat in the 11th and 12th centuries, leading Genoa to start expanding its influence, starting by picking a fight with the other maritime republic close by, Pisa. We also saw how Genoa started to expand to Corsica and to Sardinia. They would gain a decisive victory over Pisa at the Battle of Meloria in 1284. This period also coincided with the peak of the Genoese power under the diarchy of the Doria and Spinola families. The 1320s and 1330s saw them dealing with the growing threat of the Aragonese as they extended their influence over the Mediterranean. 1325 took us to the interestingly named Battle of the Bucket between Modena and Bologna, as an interesting example of wars between communes, in which, among the spoils of war the modernese took from their victory over Bologna, there was a bucket that supposedly is the one you can still see in the Cathedral of Modena to this day. The early 1330s also took us briefly over to Sardinia to set up one of the important issues of the 14th century and that is the gradual Aragonese takeover of many parts of Italy, as we mentioned above, with the traditional judicates of the island calling in the Spanish to help them against the growing influence of Pisa and Genoa, not having learned the lesson that calling in a foreign power to get rid of another just gets you yet another possibly stronger foreign power in your house.
After that, we took advantage of a special tour guide, Holy Roman Emperor Louis IV, to take a trip round northern Italy in 1327 to 1329, and we visited with the Visconti of Milan under Azzone at the time, the Della Scala of Verona under Cangrande, the Este of Ferrara under Obizzo III, Obizzo III, with Castruccio Castracani, the dog castrator in Lucca and Pisa, and the Gonzaga in Mantua under Luigi Gonzaga. Speaking of the Della Scala of Verona, the 1330s were a time when they were really getting big-headed, worrying neighbours such as the Milan of Azzone Visconti and the Venice of Doge Francesco Dandalo. At the same time, the Pope was talking to France about possibly intervening and doing something in the situation in northern Italy, when along came King John of Bohemia to mess things up. But with few consequences. It was after this dud that the Anti-Della Scala League was formed by Venice and Florence, since the Della Scala were also interfering in Tuscany, and Milan came along unenthusiastically for the ride. It was soon after this that the rule of Milan passed from Azzone to Lucchino and Giovanni, the latter also becoming archbishop. After spending so much time pottering around in the north, it was time for us to head south again to Rome. Well, sort of, because the popes in the 14th century were still in Avignon. The Romans kept sending delegations to see if the popes would come back home. One such delegation came along in 1343 to see Clement VI, led by a handsome young notary by the name of Nicola di Lorenzo Gabrini, known as Cola di Rienzo. He took the Pope's initial approval to be a blank check to do what he wanted, so he went off and roused the poor masses of Rome who ended up supporting him in ruling the city. At first he did quite well, and when the nobles, for example Stefano Colonna, tried to set up a coup, the people rebelled. In the end, however, Carlo di Rienzo got way too big-headed and went over the top, entertaining dreams of a new Italian empire with him as emperor. He ended up making everyone unhappy and running away, then going back and being lynched. We snuck off from Rome before also getting lynched in the excitement of the moment and went back down south. Here, King Charles of Naples had died and given way to Robert, who in turn popped his clogs in 1343, leaving his granddaughter, Joanna, who was 17. She was married off to another branch of the Anjou, the Hungarian branch, with Andrew, brother of the King of Hungary, Louis. So, now we had a queen and a prince consort. As far as the Hungarian Angevins were concerned, that was not enough, particularly for Andrew's brother, King Louis of Hungary. They wanted Andrew to be king. Instead, Andrew ended up murdered, possibly upon instigation of his wife, Queen Joanna, who stayed queen in her own right. 
At this point, Joanna tried to get some ruling done, sorting out the kingdom, trying to counter the activity of the brigands, and so on. A few interesting anecdotes were the young queen's refusal at the beginning to bow to the pope as her overlord. She did so in the end, but good on you, Joanna, for sticking up for yourself. She was also tried by the Pope for the murder of Andrew and found innocent. Her acceptance to sell her ancestral property of Avignon to the Pope, possibly having something to do with the innocent verdict. Unfortunately, she was not allowed to stay free and independent for a long time, and a new husband, Luigi of Taranto, was forced upon her, and she became a prisoner for a while until he was forced away by the Neapolitan subjects. After another bit of freedom, she took on another husband, James of Mallorca. Luckily, he left her mostly alone and was also a total nutjob who ended up getting himself killed. In the end, she made a mistake in siding with the French Pope Clement VII in the schism and Urban VI was none too pleased and brought down Charles of the Duras-Anjou line who ended up taking Naples and having poor Joanna killed. As we mourned the death of Joanna, we also mourned the death of communal Milan. The definitive blow to the, let's say, freedom of the city was the transition of power between Azzone and Lucchino and Giovanni, which we spoke of above, a blatant example of hereditary power transfer. Obviously, there was some opposition to this, and a conspiracy was put together, but failed. Giovanni became archbishop, and when Lucchino died, he was the sole political and religious power of Milan. When he died in 1354, he was the Signore, the Lord, of over 20 cities. He left these holdings to his two nephews, Galeazzo and Bernabò. That same year, 1354, saw another anti-Visconti league formed between Florence and Venice without huge consequences. The two Milanese brothers did a pretty good job at a power-sharing system for a couple of decades. That would bring us up to the 1370s and Pope Urban V starting to think about coming back to Rome. He stopped at just thinking before dying and, as we know, Nothing gets in the way of you bringing the papacy back to Rome like your own death. It was then Gregory XI who brought the papacy back, but when he died, we had the whole big issue of the Western Schism that we mentioned above, between Clement VII and Urban VI, the one Joanna of Naples got on the wrong side of. We also saw that Gregory had in part been convinced by the colourful Saint Catherine of Siena, whom we talked about in episodes 128 and 129. Before we went off chasing the schism into the 15th century, we had to catch up with another of the big players again, Venice. I had left them in the early 1300s, and by 1340, they were not having a good time. Indeed, the 1340s were a period of violent storms, frequent flooding, an earthquake, 
famine in 1347, and of course, starting in 1348, the Great Plague, which killed an estimated 40 to 70% of the inhabitants of Venice. There was some good news in this dark period. Indeed, thanks also to an unusual alliance with the arch-enemy Genoa, Venice managed to defeat the Turks in 1343, putting a temporary pause on their expansion into the Mediterranean. This alliance, however, between Genoa and Venice was far from the start of a beautiful friendship. Indeed, in 1350, hostilities with Genoa opened up again. Genoa first gained a victory in the waters of the Bosphorus, but then Venice got its own back thanks also to an alliance with the Aragonese at the Battle of Loyera. Having said this, Venice and Genoa beat the crap out of each other so many times that you are forgiven if you don't remember them all. I certainly don't. We stuck around long enough to see a very naughty dodger, Marine Fallier, unhappy with the limited powers of his office compared to those of the Gran Consiglio, set up a coup which failed miserably and he was executed. We also saw the Hungarians showing up and threatening the lagoon and then the issue with Genoa over Cyprus which led to a war in which the Genoese actually made it into the lagoon and threatened Venice herself before the besieging Genoese ships were in turn besieged by an arriving Venetian fleet. Speaking of fleets and islands, the late 1300s in Sardinia saw the resistance of the last independent judicate, which had not yet fallen to the Aragonese invasion which had started in the 1330s. This was the judicate of Arborea, and in the early 1380s, rule of the land fell to Eleonora, sister to the previous ruler, Big Hugo III. She came from a long line of surprisingly illuminated rulers, with very progressive pro-women laws and a political system that was as close to democratic as you could get in the Middle Ages. She is famous for collecting the laws set out by her father Mariano in the Carta de Logu and extending this important code. She also managed to continue the resistance to the Aragonese started up by her grandfather and continued by her father, and at one point she took control of almost all of the island of Sardinia. After her death, however, Arborea did fall to the Aragonese in 1410. Sicily was also added to the Aragonese holdings shortly after. The last independent king of Sicily, Frederick IV, after finally managing to make peace with the Kingdom of Naples after almost a century of war, and managing to survive the factional infighting on the island, albeit without very much control over his lands, died in 1377, leaving the kingdom to his daughter, Maria. She was married off to Martin of Aragon, and through a series of unexpected deaths and successions, he became king of Aragon and of Sicily, thus marking the end of Sicilian independence. Naples would eventually follow. There, Charles of Duras, who had deposed Joanna I, died in prison in Hungary, leaving the throne to his son, Ladislao, who got really big ideas about expanding his kingdom to all of Italy in some sort of Italian alliance that he would be the leader of. 
he did not survive his own over-exaggerated sexual appetite, dying of a venereal disease, and leaving the throne to his unprepared sister Joanna II. She tried to do a decent job, relying on the help of her favourites and some say lovers to keep things together. At a certain point, she promised the succession to Alphonse, King of Aragon, but then, in the end, changed her mind. However, when the time came, Alphonse remembered the promise and managed to subdue the Kingdom of Naples, adding it to Sicily and Sardinia and making a straight diagonal line from the Italian mainland up through Sardinia, the Baleares and to Spain, opening up a new chapter in Italian history of Spanish domination. Heading north from the Kingdom of Naples, we then took the example of one of the mercenary captains which was so common in Italy in the 14th and 15th centuries. Some examples were Alberigo da Barbiano, the Count of Carmagnola, John Hawkwood, Jacopo del Verme, Guido Torelli, and, and the man we took as an example, Braccio da Montone, born Andrea Fortebraccio. He took to the life of a mercenary after killing a man in his hometown of Montone to defend his brother. He rose through the ranks of the company of St. George of Alberigo da Barbiano, where he met another sellsword who would become his great friend and later rival, Muzio Attendolo Sforza, father of Francesco Sforza, who would become Duke of Milan. Braccio formed his own company and eventually rose to become Lord of Perugia, Foligno, Fabriano, Campino, Forli, Assisi, Orvieto and Rieti. He got involved with all of the main players at the time, either for or against. Florence, the Papacy, the Visconti, the Montefeltro family of Urbino, whom we haven't had time to speak about but will, and the Malatesta of Rimini. He never lost a battle until the 2nd of June, 1424, when he lost his first and last battle, dying shortly after of his wounds, possibly assassinated, some say, by Francesco Sforza. Our trip heading back north then took us from Umbria to Tuscany again. The region, and Florence in particular, saw a great growth in the 14th century from a demographic and economic point of view, with Florence growing in influence and dominance, despite not having any particular geographical advantages. Within the government of Florence, one of the most important developments was the power shifting away from the noble families towards the guilds and corporations, which were groups of the various professions in the city. We must not be under the illusion, however, that this was some kind of popular democracy, for soon the arti maggiori, or major arts such as the woolmakers, bankers and notaries, took precedence over the arti minori, with the very low classes being totally excluded from government, and even from professional representation, meaning they were not even allowed to form guilds. This would create rising tensions throughout the century, heating up at times, such as the case of the general strike in 1345, perhaps the first in history of its kind, by Ciuta Brandini, 
and then in 1378, the famous Revolt of the Chompi, when the poor wool workers started a revolt that brought the popular classes to power, albeit for a very short time. Other events of note in the 14th century in Tuscany were a brief period in which Walter of Brienne ruled over Florence and the War of the Eight Saints against the Papacy in the 1370s. The year of the Chompi Revolt, 1378, also saw the death of one of the two Visconti brothers, Galeazzo, who left his part of the lands of Milan to his son, Gian Galeazzo. He would pretty soon do away with his uncle Bernabò and become the sole ruler and would see himself elevated to duke. This period, the late 14th century, was one of great Milanese expansion and rising tensions with Florence, to the point that Florence became almost completely surrounded by Milanese holdings and was in existential peril. This came to a stop in 1402 when Gian Galeazzo died prematurely, allowing the Florentines to breathe a sigh of relief. While they were breathing said sigh, in the same year a certain Giovanni di Bici de' Medici made his first appearance in the public records in Florence on a commission for the selection of a tender for artwork. Thanks to his business and banking skills and shrewd political instinct, he would set up his family to become one of the most illustrious ruling dynasties in the history of Florence, Italy and perhaps the world. He expanded his family's banking business thanks also to the connections with Pope John XXIII or anti-Pope John XXIII and set himself up as an important political figure in the city without being too obvious or dominant. He also started the important family tradition of being an artistic patron, something that would make Florence the cradle of Renaissance art that it is to this day. The early 15th century also saw Florence gain important access to a seaport with the acquisition of Pisa, which definitively marked the end of the independence of the Maritime Republic. While things were going quite well for Florence, they weren't going so well for Milan in the wake of the death of Gian Galeazzo. He left his wife Caterina as regent for his sons Giovanni Maria and Filippo Maria, after some turbulent times, Giovanni Maria would be assassinated, not by his brother, and Caterina put to one side and then died in prison. While Filippo Maria ruled in the most back-and-forth, flip-flopping, double-faced ways possible. Important elements in his reign are the fact that he sided with the Genoese against Alphonse of Aragon and when the coalition managed to capture the Spanish king, Filippo Maria made a deal with him and released him, greatly annoying the Genoese with their long-standing anti-Aragonese grudge. Filippo Maria also used the services of the mercenary Francesco Sforza, even marrying him to his daughter, before the Pope managed to flip Sforza's loyalty. Filippo Maria would die in 1447, leaving an uncertain succession, but with Francesco Sforza married to his heir. 
Our last stop in our seemingly endless round and round tour took us up to catch up with Piedmont and the House of Savoy. We saw how Piedmont was a mix between dynastic families such as the Marquis or Marquises of Monferrato, of Saluzzo and the Counts of Biandrate and, of course, of Savoy, and important communes with Alessandria in the lead, as well as many smaller towns and castles. The 12th and 13th centuries saw these realities clash with a growing influence of the Savoy, starting with their earliest known representative, Hubert of the White Hand, appearing in the year 1000. From Savoy, in modern-day France, they slowly made their way down into Italy, taking first Turin, and then Cuneo, and down to Nice, and subsequently consolidating those holdings, thanks to careful politics and choosing the right side at the right time in conflicts in Italy and France. We saw that an important role was played by one of the first really complete figures that we have, Amedeo VI, known as the Green Count, who dabbled in the politics of northern Italy with Milan, Venice and Florence, as well as in France. It was his son, Amadeo VII, the Red Count, who died mysteriously, setting up an interesting mystery that we looked into. His son, in turn, another Amadeo, the eighth this time, did the usual good Savoy job of expanding and consolidating, then gave it all up and sort of retired to a monastery but kept on ruling by proxy and did not lead a very monastic life. He would come out of his retirement to become Pope Felix V upon a request by the Council of Basel, but he would then step down to avoid a further schism, at the same time maintaining the benefits of the position, and finally dying in peace in 1451. So, my dear friends and listeners, or listeners and friends, or friends that are listeners, those are the episodes from 101 to 136. I think I've found the right formula, going round and round starting from Sardinia. So basically you'll be getting from now on Sardinia, Sicily, Kingdom of Naples, Papal States, possibly San Marino, then Florence, Genoa, Piedmont, Milan, possibly Trentino, and ending up with good old Venice. The next round should take us out of the Middle Ages. The date I have chosen for that is 1492, after some debate with Marco Capelli of Storia d'Italia. We were debating between 1453, the fall of Constantinople, or 1492, the discovery of America. As always in history, there's no clear definition, but the clash with a previously completely unknown continent except of course, if you count all the Vikings, could be seen as a good divider. It could also be a point to stop and look back at all the tons and tons of notes I have from the program, and why not make it into a book? Would you buy a book written by me on the Italian Middle Ages in the style of the podcast? Let me know so I can avoid working on it this summer if it's a stupid idea. I really hope you will continue to follow us in our journey. Remember, you can get in touch. Hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. You can also find us on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter. You can also become a Patreon to support the show and have access to extra content and ad-free episodes, 
You can do so by going to patreon.com slash a history of Italy. Grazie, grazie. Thank you, thank you very much again for listening. And until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com. That's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com and find out how to submit your show.